0: Welcome to this week's episode of the Hammer Time Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Hammerman. Listen to every episode on iTunes talking about sports, society, and stuff almost each and every week, but two weeks in a row, so we're doing pretty well right now, and we have a great guest tonight, someone who is very accomplished, very smart, and very, very good at what he does. He is the founder, I believe, of InsideThePylon.com. He is Mark Schofield. Mark, how are you doing today? Ethan, how are you, man? I'm doing well. I'm I'm doing great. I'm very excited because haven't had too many other Patriots fans on the show and you're I've really liked what inside the pylon has brought to football and we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we move on in the show. Start with the sports component and I have to ask the question that I ask everyone who comes on the Hammer Time podcast. How did you first get into football?
1: You know, it's funny, i grew up in the Boston area, I grew up in Baltham, um, you know, like 10, 20 minutes outside Boston, and growing up in the Boston area in the 1980s, the sport that I wanted to play as a kid around that time was hockey, like, the Patriots weren't very good, and my dad played high school hockey, coached juniors, coached a lot of my cousins in, like, youth hockey and stuff, and so I wanted to play hockey, and my parents, when I came to them with this, they're like, first of all, you can't skate. You're awful at skating, like you fall on your face all the time. And second of all, your dad's knees are shot, like he's limping around all the time. So, no, you're not playing hockey. So then my second choice was, okay, then I want to play football. And I was nine. And they were like, okay, fine. Well, that's that's great. You can, you can play football. And so I give them, you know, I give them a little bit of crap every time I see them now because, you know, I'm, my knees are shot and I'm limping around. And I'm like, look, you guys wouldn't let me play hockey because you were worried about my knees and stuff. And you let me play football and here I am. But that's how I started. I started playing when I was nine and I still remember my first game in Pop Warner. I was a running back in my first year and the very first play of the season, I got the ball on like a little off tackle play. The linebacker comes over after I hit the hole and I, you know, we make contact and I spin off of him and fall forward for like a six yard gain. And I was hooked. I just, I, I wanted to keep playing football. I loved it from that moment.
0: I mean, that sounds like a great place to start. And you know, my dad is from Brookline, so my oh, mom's yeah. from Worcester, so Worcester, sorry. Worcester. Yeah, I got to say it the right way, so I have plenty of experience in that area, and it's funny, my dad also said growing up he was not a football fan at all because they were so bad. Uh, there was yeah. no reason to really like the team because they were just before craft, I mean, they almost went to St. Louis, and they were just not very good other than that one spate of success with – the Tony Easton-Steve Grogan combination. Oh, my which, That's Super Bowl. My God. So, so by the way, can we just talk about how weird it was that they basically had two quarterbacks and one of them was sort of like the more heralded one, the other one was just better. How was that yeah. not a bigger controversy at the time?
1: I, I think part of it was because, you know, you could imagine what that would have been like in today's media. Me- era, like, imagine, like, a team that gets to the Super Bowl that basically is running two different quarterbacks out there. Like, Twitter would be almost nightmarish talking about it 24 hours a day. But back then, I mean, Grogan was basically, at the obviously, the twilight of his career. But, you know, as close as you could get to a legend in the New England Patriots fan base, I mean, you have John Hanna and Steve Grogan. I mean, that's basically it. That's what they were running out there. I mean, a quarterback that wears neck roll. And you had Tony Eason, who was a member of that 1983 quarterback class. I mean, you think about the guys that were taken in that class, and then there's Tony Eason, a pretty highly regarded prospect out of the University of Illinois. But, you know, they were trying to bring him along. It's just an interesting dynamic, and it played out as the teams getting themselves to the Super Bowl against arguably the best defense in NFL history. Like, I I couldn't imagine that happening today.
0: It's just so strange to think about because I know the corollary that sort of comes to mind for me, well, there are two actually. One is Drew Brees and Philip Rivers on the Chargers. That team was awful. And a lot of that – of Brees' success his last year really was sort of the catalyst that found him that job because otherwise he wasn't doing anything. And the other one that jumps to mind is Rob Johnson and Doug Flutie on the Bills.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but, I think that's a good one.
0: And both of these happen – a while ago like in the mid 2000s or early 2000s but the crazy thing is that that year the year they made the Super Bowl Tony Eason threw 300 passes and Steve Grogan threw 160 and they were rotating snaps at certain points I, th- I think Eason started but then he got hurt and then and Grogan really was the one who brought them through the playoffs if I recall correctly and I've only watched like highlight films and uh, I've actually watched the full game my dad had the game against the Dolphins recorded in the playoffs when they beat Marino. And that that was the time when my dad was like, Oh, you can follow all these great players like Craig James, you know, he's on ESPN now. And, and now we're all like, Oh, Craig James. But I mean, it's just kind of crazy to me that, um, that, that a team with two quarterbacks, uh, couldn't make it that far. And that yeah, there wasn't I mean, more of a controversy. It just really is, I feel, pretty unprecedented.
1: Yeah, and, you know, this is a team that also won three road playoff games to get to the Super Bowl. I mean, you know, they had to beat the Jets, then they had to go out to the Raiders, and then Miami all on the road. And that's also strange to think about. I mean, playing basically three AFC East teams in the playoffs. Well, I guess the Raiders weren't an AFC East team, never were, but playing two AFC East teams just to get to the Super Bowl. But, you know, then they ran into that buzzsaw, that Chicago Bears defense. I mean, I just remember being in the Boston area, you know, leading up to that game and talking yourselves, yourself into the thought that maybe, you know, maybe they could pull it off. But, you know, that was in an era when you didn't have, like, game rewind or game pass or, you know, you didn't have – you know, 24-7 coverage of it. So you just didn't, unless you had watched a ton of Bears games, you just didn't know how dominant that defense was. I mean, that game was over. I mean, yeah, New England scored first. People forget. You know, Tony Franklin probably, I think he might have been the last barefooted kicker in the NFL. So, throws yeah. a field goal to go up 3 nothing, and that was it. I mean, game was over.
0: It was like when they played the Packers in the Super Bowl. <laughs> to be completely honest uh, with yeah, how quickly it mean, I mean, got out to that.
1: That one, I mean, I, I remember the talk that week was all about um, Vinatieri being able to, you know, because he had chased down Herschel Walker on a kickoff return against the Cowboys in the regular season. And I remember people asking Vinatieri, like, do you think you'd be able to chase down, you know, Desmond Howard if you ever had to? And is pretty confident. He's like, yeah, you know, I chased down Herschel Walker, but sure enough, you know, Howard how was the MVP of that game. And, you know, and then there, of course, there was the whole Parcells thing with that Super Bowl where, you know, he, either, he didn't fly back with the team and everybody knew that Parcells wanted out. I mean, just that was just another like typical Patriots debacle on the national stage, which is why that, you know, Super Bowl 36? you know, we were playing with house money at that point. I mean, this was the team that should have never have even been in the Super Bowl. So the fact that they just got there against the Rams was enough.
0: That team was so bad. Uh, When you look at the talent that Bill Belichick had put together, it was just the weirdest combination of players. And, you know, they did – they played with that really physical cornerback duo of Ty Law and Otis Smith. Otis Smith is a really underrated player in my opinion. I he Like, like that dude just made plays. He was like if D'Angelo Hall knew how to cover a little bit better. Uh, He had just so much ability. And then, of course, Ty Law was phenomenal. They had Laura Malloy. Um, that defensive line, I mean, that was Richard Seymour's second season or rookie season? I think it was I his rookie was season. His
1: second.
0: Yeah. Maybe. I might be, yeah, I think it was rookie season because they had a top 10 pick and that was the, the one of two top 10 picks that they've had. So I'm pretty sure it was his rookie season, but I mean, I remember that that draft and the first team that I really remember following for the Patriots is in 1996, by the way. So that was that actual first Super Bowl team. I remember the 2001 season that the – it was a bit surprising that they took Seymour. A lot of people are going to take the wide receiver from Michigan, David Terrell, who had, yeah. like, the big number one, and they needed a receiver because they hadn't had a really good one since Terry Glenn left, and they ended up just – going with this weird duo of Troy Brown and David Patton. David Patton is one of my favorite players of all time, by the way. I think oh, yeah. he's he's Troy amazing.
1: But, I mean, remember when they drafted Seymour, I mean, Ron Borges right into the Boston Globe was just like, this guy had like two or three sacks in the pass happy SEC. He's never going to be able to rush the passer in the NFL. It was a horrible pick, which is why – you know, I trot that quote out whenever I see a Borges column that's like railing against the draft pick. I like go right back to that article because obviously Seema was able to rush the pass when he gets to the NFL. And that's, you know, as we see on draft Twitter, like the whole like box score scouting angle that sometimes people take. Well, I think of Ron Borges whenever somebody trots that phrase out.
0: Rewatching. And I've rewatched that season a few times, that magical 2001 season. Um, after the first few games, of course. People forget that third game, Brady's first start, they destroyed the Colts. That was a slaughter, and that was also a game where I believe they ran a play they've only run twice in the past 15 years, um, or maybe it's more than 15. It was – yeah, it was 15. Um, the play where they threw the ball to – um, David Patton, and then he throws the yeah. ball to Troy Brown. They used that only one other time in 15 years, and it was the edelman Amendola play. edelman
1: Amendola, yeah. And that, wasn't that the game that Patton scored, I think? He threw a touchdown, he caught a touchdown, and he had a kickoff return for a touchdown? He ran
0: for a touchdown.
1: He ran for a touchdown. Yeah, I knew he scored three different ways. But, yeah, I mean, they blew the doors off the Colts. I mean, you know, and then they had that Sunday night game, I think, against the Rams in the regular season when the Rams were – you know, blowing everybody out. And it was in Foxborough, it was, you know, primetime audience. And it was a one-score game. And that's kind of when people started to buy in, at least on the team, that, hey, you know, this is the best team in the NFC, and we hung with them.
0: I remember watching a few of the games that year uh, very clearly. I actually don't remember that Rams game. I don't know why. Maybe I was sleeping at that point, or maybe I just missed it. Uh, the games that I remember from 2001, though, are as follows. I remember the comeback against the Chargers where Brady just – it was his first big comeback game. He really willed the team to win at the very end with a crazy touchdown pass to Jermaine Wiggins, if I recall correctly, where he uh, just had to, like, struggle in the pocket and just somehow bought enough time to find that guy in the front of the end zone. Jermaine Wiggins was so good that one season, by the way. Oh, yeah. One of the under, one of those underrated players the Patriots just randomly found. I remember the Falcons win, a uh, week eight, just because there was a play. This was lucky, but Brady threw the ball. I think it was Detroit Brown and it hit off his helmet, and then David Patton caught it for a touchdown.
1: Yeah, um, I think it was flipped, but yeah, I remember that play. Oh, maybe I think he threw it to Patton, and Brown caught it. But, yeah.
0: And then the, the one other game I remember uh, from that regular season was week 14 against the Bills. Yeah. Um, when – and this is why, for what it's worth, you know, Mike Carey has gone through a lot of hard times. Actually, have have a funny story about this play as it pertains to Mike Carey. But uh, Mike Carey, you know, he wasn't very good in CBS. I feel bad for him about that. But in that game, there was a play in overtime. The game went to overtime, and David Patton caught a pass, and he got destroyed by Nate Clements, uh, who was a really, really good cornerback on the Bills. And I remember that um, Patton fell out of bounds. His helmet hit the white, and then the ball came out. And I remember that Mike Carey reviewed the play, and he made the call that because – David Patton's helmet was out of bounds that the, the, it wasn't a fumble yeah. because it was out of bounds before the ball came out. And my fun Mike carry fact is that I actually saw him 10 years after this play, and I remembered this call, and I saw him at the Sloan Sports Symposium in oh, nice. Boston. I went, like, two years, and it was a lot of fun. I think now it's, like, even back then it was getting a little bit, too mainstream, and now it's probably just, like, a mess, so I, I don't need to go anymore, but it was fun at the time, and I went up to Mike Carey. He's just, like, this unassuming guy wearing a leather jacket, just chilling, uh, and he looks exactly the same, by the way. That man does not age. It's stunning. He is, uh, his his skin is phenomenal, but I went up to him, and I was like, hey, I just wanted to say I really appreciate how you always explain your calls really well, and this one call I particularly remember is when you made this call in this Buffalo game. And I mentioned him, I was like, oh, well, thank you. You know, we always try to do our jobs right. Um, I really appreciate you recognizing me. Nicest guy. So I, oh, wow. I can't hate on him too much. He's the nicest guy. But then, that day, there was a panel on NFL strategy, and Eric Mangini was there, and they oh. talked about referee analytics. And unprompted, Mangini brought up that play. He brought really? up that Buffalo play as an example of how that would have gone as, like, a net correct and uh, how the challenge rule was beneficial or whatnot. I don't remember the exact logistics. I just remember that was one of the best Mike Carey coincidences ever. And for all the awful work he did on CBS, and honestly, I just think he never really – I think that he was under pressure to maybe be a, a little bit more uh, beneficial to the referees, a lot of whom who he knew – than he should have been. I think that there are some, some issues there, but I, he was a good referee on the field, and I always have yeah, respect I for mean, him for I, that.
1: Yeah, he was good on the field, but the, the the TV career, it just never was a good fit for him.
0: Yeah, and uh, that that 2001 season was amazing. Do you remember where you were for the Tuck Rule game?
1: I do. It was my third year in law school, and I remember we actually – my roommate was – a Ravens fan, and so we lived in townhouse, and like two out of townhouses down uh, was the girl I was dating at the time, was now my wife, and another friend of ours. So we got like a pony cake, had people over like all weekend, and we were watching that game Saturday night. And you know, all I remember was basically when the kick goes through the uprights to win it in overtime, just like running around like the entire you know, townhouse complex. like scream at the top of my line. It's like, Pat's point. It's like, you know, midnight or whatever. Um, and just basically losing my mind. Um, you know, I mean, that's one of those moments where you're like, oh, well, they had a good run. You know, you see that fumble and you're like, you know, never would have expected the way that this year it started and losing blood so that they'd even get to this point. It stinks to lose, but, you know, they had a good run. And then, you know, they're reviewing it and you're like... No, they're not going to see it. That's that's a fumble, right? That's a fumble. They're not going to call that back. I mean, I had never heard of this rule before. So, yeah, I mean, that's where I was. What about you?
0: I remember that we were on a religious retreat in the Catskills, and it was snowing. And we were in our room watching TV, and it was really basic satellite. Like, I remember that was the first year that we got DirecTV to get Sunday Ticket, and it was just, like, like, it was so different to watch Sunday Ticket in 2001 than it is to watch now. I mean, now I don't even watch Sunday Ticket, I just watch Red Zone because it's easier. Unless there's a, yeah. a game on that I want to watch that's very specific. But, I remember that, like, there was snow on the dish, so the game kept going in and out and in and out, and it was, it was the worst. Uh, oh, that's but, yeah, I mean, and they were losing and I think that we didn't start watching until the second half. And I remember that on the tuck rule, um I mean, I thought it was a fumble. Uh, yeah. By uh, uh, you know, Walt Coleman, that was how the rule was written at the time, so he yeah. interpreted it very interpreted, literally. Right? Uh, I think I still think visually like and I understand why Raiders fans are still angry about that because I mean, that was probably their best chance at winning a Super Bowl and it yeah. sort of
1: I mean, slipped through their fingers. I, mean, yeah, I, I get why Raiders fans are mad, but, you know, how many chances did they have to just make a first down or two and ice that game away? And they couldn't. And, you know, it should have never really come to that play for them. But, you know, again, I can understand why, you know, being on the flip side of that would be brutal to watch and why they get angry every time it's shown on TV.
0: And, and then by the same token of the Pittsburgh game, I don't remember where I was, but I remember that uh, when Bledsoe threw that touchdown pass, I was just so happy for him, that he got his moment. That he deserved that moment, and I was really happy that uh, for someone who had gone through so much and really had to take a back seat, and it was pretty clear that his time – was coming to an end in Boston, although I remember that that summer, even after the Super Bowl win, there was a lot of conversation that they might move Brady because of Bledsoe's contract, but yeah. they couldn't They couldn't do that after he won the Super Bowl, and, and that Super no, Bowl game great. was just the best. I was at a friend's house, we had a Super Bowl party, and at that time, it was actually fun to root for the Patriots, so I think, despite living... Right outside of New York, we were all rooting for the Patriots over the Rams. I think we were just – because the Rams were the greatest show on turf, so people didn't really want to – like, they were the bandwagon team. So uh,
1: none of us really
0: wanted them to win. No,
1: same thing. Like, we had people over for that game and, you know, again, just kind of just like losing your mind when Vinatieri wins it. I mean, you've got Madden up in the booth saying, no, I don't agree with this at all. They need to just run the clock out. And, you know, the, again, Jermaine Wiggins, guy you mentioned earlier, like made a big catch on that drive. Troy Brown obviously had a huge catch.
0: J.R. Redmond, drive yeah. starter J.R. Redmond. He, he did nothing else in his career. And I remember, so I've been a, like a draft head forever. I, I don't remember the first draft I watched. I want to say it was the one where Jonathan Ogden was picked just because I think I remember him getting picked. I definitely watched the one where the Patriots picked Chris Candy in 96. So maybe it was yeah. – that might have been Ogden's, but around then. But I remember that when they picked Redmond, I was so excited because all of a sudden they had this, like, big bruising back and they had just lost Robert Edwards, who uh, – one of the saddest – one of the saddest stories. People don't appreciate how good Robert Edwards was. And th- these youngsters don't understand how good Robert Edwards was. But I I just remember Redmond – Made some plays, and I was really happy, because... There we go, yeah, he finally got I mean, a chance. he was so good. Yeah, definitely. Um, and we're back. I just saw the cat. I actually hadn't <laughs> seen the cat before. Before we get on 2016, uh, I did want to say that I wanted to remember some random Patriots past who I, I think are underrated. Uh, and the first one is Robert Edwards, just because he was so good. And people don't... People don't understand how good he was. Like, as someone... Like, around at that time, what can you say about the guy who who had a touchdown record for rookies for quite a while?
1: I mean, it's just heartbreaking, in a way. And, you know, you you look at a lot of rookies that come into the NFL, and, you know, it doesn't pan out for them, and you wonder what might have been, but we had such a clear glimpse of what Robert Edwards could have been, and by an extension, how great that Patriots team could have been. That rookie season, I mean, he was as good a rookie running back as I've seen in a long time. And to lose him the way they did on not just – he wasn't even in the Pro Bowl game. I mean, it was a beach flag football game, and he just destroys his knee. I mean, you know, New England's had a long history of, like, losing young, talented athletes. I mean, obviously, Len Bias and Reggie Lewis um, in heartbreaking fashion with both of those young men. And to lose Edwards in a career an injury in an exhibition game like that, I mean, again, you just wonder what could have been for that team. I mean, obviously they still had a great run, but to have, lose a talented guy like that and have his career end like that, it was just tough to watch.
0: And uh, for those who don't know what happened, because a lot of people were either not alive or like three to four years old when this was happening, at least That's- who I talked to on a regular basis, Robert Edwards was a running back for the Patriots and out of Georgia, uh, go dogs. And in his first year, he ran for 1,000 yards, had 10 touchdowns, and then pretty much did nothing else because he blowed his knee. And he almost – and he blowed his knee at a flag football game on the sand, by the way, on the beach. Yeah. And, and they told him they almost had
1: to amputate
0: it It's crazy. They almost had to amputate the guy's leg. Uh, which, I mean, whatever.
1: And, and it, I, so I, if I remember it right, he was jumping straight up and landed awkwardly, and it like, you know who's that running back? Napoleon McCallum it was kind of like that, I think, where like the leg just like bent over awkwardly and just destroyed everything in his knee.
0: And Napoleon Kaufman,
1: yes, Napoleon oh, Kaufman, former
0: yeah. Raiders guy, yeah. I, I, Really sad. And they ended up on the Dolphins and the Lions and then in Canada. Um, yeah, I just hope the guy's doing well. It's such a shame. Really, really such a shame. Second guy I want to remember, a little bit older, I think. Well, around that same time, I guess. Uh, ben Coates. Oh, yeah. tight end from a really random university that I can't remember right now, but I just remember that. Uh, he was so good. So reliable. Chris Berman on NFL primetime would call him Ben Wintercoats, yeah. along with Vincent well, Ultimate Frisbee. In, in college,
1: in Salisbury, North Carolina. Well,
0: how about that? I mean, that's, that's a pretty obscure university to go yeah. to. But, yeah, how is this guy? I mean, this guy was at least a Martellus Bennett level, right? Like, this guy was a pretty phenomenal oh, yeah. tight end. And remember that, like, Bledsoe loved him. Mm-hmm. I mean,
1: Bledsoe just loved him and loved to, you know, throw it to him and double, triple coverage. Like, I mean, you talk about quarterbacks that have a good relationship with a receiver. I mean, Bledsoe and Coates, man. I mean, Bledsoe would trust him in any situation. He had, like, no fear of forcing passes to him. Ben
0: Coates' 1994 season. These numbers are staggering, especially for a tight end, especially in 1994 when passing numbers weren't quite as inflated as they may be now. 96 catches, 1,174 yards, and seven touchdowns.
1: Yeah, and the crazy part, 12.2 per reception. I mean, for a tight end, though, that's pretty big. Yeah,
0: one of those... 96
1: catches, like, yeah, those are huge numbers.
0: One of those really phenomenal players, uh, along with... I remember in that receiving corps also there was Vincent Brisby... Who oh, yeah. was one of my favorites? Part of uh, the random Marshall connection that the Patriots have with wide receivers, by the way, they had Brisby, they had Troy Brown, and, and Dobson. Now, even though Dobson doesn't look like he's going to be quite of as course, good, you
1: know, Moss as well. I Moss mean, too. To Moss, but yeah,
0: yeah. The, the, the Patriots Marshall connection is strange, uh,
1: it's almost it's random. It's the, the Rutgers connection.
0: Almost, although that one is also a little bit too Shiano for my liking, but I think it was Devin McCourty, so that's pretty good. Um, another Patriot who was coming to mind when I was thinking about random Patriots, uh, Willie Clay. Oh, yeah. Uh, he Willie was Clay. sort of the uh, the freelancing safety in a time before there were freelancing safeties.
1: Yeah, no, he, he, was, he was good. I mean, the Patriots have always had you know, they've never had like the, outside of the year that they had Rebus, obviously Ty Law was a you know great defensive back, Malloy and Rodney Harrison, but they've never like had, you know, guys that you would think of as like you know, they've never had like incredibly awesome secondary like loaded talent big name guys like Willie Clay, guys like that, like you said Otis Smith. Guys that just like went out there and did their job and like flew under the radar and, you know, you never even heard of them. Um, but in this system under this coaching staff did incredible stuff. I mean, Willie Clay, guy that bounced around. I mean, the Lions, the Pats, the Saints, and then had a couple great years in New England.
0: And I have to end it with my my favorite random Patriot ever. I literally only remember him because of one catch he made. Um, but Fred Coleman, huh. the only reason I remember um, was because was he like in the XFL or something? I think so. And he had one game against the Jets where I think he caught a slant and went like 60 yards. And uh, he won that game for the Patriots. I think it might have been around when Brady was just starting or right after that. I just remember watching yeah. that and being like, oh, that guy's yeah. awesome. And then he never did anything else in another game. Never yeah. did anything Super else.
1: catches in the NFL. And one was that slant that well, went for a TD. So in terms of catches, he was you know, batting 500 in terms of catches that went for touchdowns. Yeah,
0: it reminded me of, uh, I remember the year that they drafted Tony Simmons from Wisconsin. Oh, yeah. That was a, a Carol Bobby Greer special, I believe. Yeah. And I Tony Simmons was terrible. Like, an awful wide receiver. But he caught a Hail Mary against the Colts one time. And I remember watching that and freaking out about it when I was like 7 or 8. That's my So I have, I have positive memories of Tony Simmons. But let's move from the past to the present. And let's talk about this year. It looks like Jimmy Garoppolo, unless there's some legal ramifications that happen after this podcast, it looks like Jimmy Garoppolo is going to start the first four games. Or I guess if Jacoby Brissett ends up overtaking him in the preseason, which would be really bad. So I guess, what are your expectations for how Garoppolo should perform in these first four games?
1: I mean, obviously I think that we're gonna well to take it a step back, trying to ascertain what a Bill Belichick, Josh McDaniels game plan is gonna look like when there are question marks is I've been on the losing end of such prognostications over the past couple of years because every time you think you know what they're gonna do, they do something completely different. Like you know, remember the start of last year when they rolled out that like four tight end jumbo package with you know, Mike Williams, a former offensive tackle at tight end. Not how I would have expected them to start the season, but that's what they were doing a lot of. So what I'm going to say will probably be wrong, but I'd imagine we're going to see a lot of 12 personnel, two tight ends with Bennett and Gronk, try to get run game going and just try to take as much off of the plate off of Garoppolo's play as they can. I think Jimmy, looking at his tape all the way back to the Eastern Illinois days, like, he's got decent enough arm strength, fairly decent anticipation when he's trying to make plays and, you know, throw receivers open and things like that. There is an issue of him, at least when he was Eastern Illinois, and then even some preseason action, forcing the ball into coverage. I think they're going to do everything they can to not, you know, put him in a situation where he's going to have to make throws like that. But, in terms of how I think they end up, I mean, I think everybody's kind of thinking two and two would be something reasonable. I mean, that opening game out in Arizona, I can't imagine them coming out of Arizona with a victory in that game. I mean, now that's probably too much to ask, right?
0: I th- I'm conservatively projecting two and two for the Patriots yeah. with Brady out, and I think they could go three and one. That Arizona game's gonna be really tough. Yeah, that is the one game where I think. Uh, Ant's on the road, and they're the one team on their schedule that I think can guard both Gronk and Bennett. I think they're gonna try to get the play action going with Garoppolo, because the one thing I notice is that, first of all, he has a great quick release. His release is elite to me, or at least can approach elite. Uh, and also he has a beautiful deep ball, so I think they're gonna try to establish the run and then get things going deep. His pocket presence is what I really need to see better of. Um, He is a little bit caustic when pressure gets around him. I think part of that, though, is that he's never played with the best Patriots offensive line, and notoriously, the Patriots preseason offensive line is absolute garbage once you get past the first stringers. They don't play the first stringers that much because uh, they're way too valuable, and it's easy for them to get hurt. Now, I do think this year, the... Backup offensive line is better than in years past. They have so much depth there with the Thune pick. They got John Cooper. They have all these young guards. They have all these other players. I'm very, very hopeful that the offensive line might actually not be trashed this year. Yeah, if they get Skarnackia back. Skarnacchia back is going to be huge. Although, to be fair, I don't think that DiGuglielmo did that bad last year, considering the injuries and Nate soldier's injury was very important. Soldier isn't one of the top five offensive tackles in the league, but he's very, very good. And when he was gone, that entire unit just took a huge step back and they never really recovered from it. I think that there's a good chance Sork gets traded this off season, which is kind of crazy for me to think about, but apparently the team loves David Andrews and yeah, that's what, I've heard from a few people. And then you also have Trey Jackson, Shaq Mason, Joe Thune, who I think is going to end up playing sort of the guard swing tackle role, yeah. and Jonathan Cooper, who I think could make the team. Uh, he's someone who was a top-ten pick, and he he was miscast in that system, that blocking scheme in Arizona. I think that he could be a lot better in New England. One of those guys is going to get cut, right? Like, they can't take four – Pure guards and then a center onto the final roster. When you also yeah. are going to have Solder and you're going to have Volmer and I guess you need to have another offensive tackle. Maybe that's Thoney I'm not even sure. But there's they they might not have enough roster spots for all these young offensive linemen. So no, I'm hoping I'm just, it's better this year.
1: Yeah, I, I I was I remember we had Marcus um, Miguel Benz on Cap on. Our podcast recently, he was saying that Marcus Cannon, his cap figure is so astronomical that they're going to move him at some point. I'm trying to remember the exact numbers, but it was just like, you know, he was basically saying there's no reason this guy needs to be on the team right now because of his cap figure. And so they, I, would be, I would definitely be surprised to see him still around.
0: And they also have Adrian Waddle, and the only reason I know that is because it was his birthday today and the team wished him happy birthday on Twitter. Oh, nice. At, but yeah, he I mean, started for the this. Lions. What's that? He started for the Lions last year, so uh, he's not bad either.
1: Yeah, I mean, they've got the bodies. The thing that sets up for them nicely in those first four games is they get, you know, obviously they start on the road, but then they get three home games. One of them's, you know, they get the Dolphins, and then the Texans on a Thursday night, so then they get that kind of mini-bye before they have to play the Bills. And so... You've got you know three home games. Obviously, you figure they'll lose to Arizona, but then you've got three home games, one of which is kind of a mini-bye because you get the Thursday night. I don't know who the Texans play that week before, but maybe the Texans have to travel twice. So, I mean, I could definitely see them going 2-2. Two and two. And, you know, frankly, that would be fine. I mean, if, if they lose to the – say they lose to Arizona and Houston but win two divisional games in that time frame, fine. I that think... sets them up nicely.
0: I think there's a better chance to lose to the Bills. I'm just a little bit nervous about how well the Bills are defended Brady last year because they did a yeah. really good job, and Rex is a good coach. The good thing though is that those offenses that they're going to be facing are not very good, so yeah. that'll that'll be a little bit helpful for them. We're going to actually move to the society portion now, uh, and you mentioned earlier that you went to law school, William and Mary. William and Mary. So why don't you talk about what inspired you to go to law school and then what sort of law you ended up practicing?
1: Yeah, I mean, in terms of what inspired me for law school, I I don't know if it was more an inspiration or just a way to put off making a real decision about what I wanted to do with my life. I mean, I went to Wesleyan University and my major was something called the College of Social Studies, which was the easiest way to describe it was a quad major of history, government, philosophy and economics. And they nicknamed it the, Su- the College of Suicidal Sophomores because sophomore year, you basically had two classes a week. You had classes outside of your major, but in your major, you had two classes a week. You had a philosophy seminar on Monday, and it worked on a trimester schedule. So you had either a history, uh, economics, or a f- um, government um, seminar on Friday. So you'd read some massive book you know, Das Kapital, whatever, and have to write a paper and defend it in class each week, Monday and Friday. And that's what my sophomore year was like. And that's what the exams were like. You had a 24-hour period where you had to write a bunch of stuff on philosophy, 24 hours to sleep, and then, you know, one exam in each of the um, mediums, each of the topics, and then you had to defend your paper to your four professors at the end. So it basically was like getting you ready for law school because that's kind of what law school was like. You have to make an argument and defend it. And so when I was getting near graduation, trying to figure out what I was going to do after my senior year, I was like, well, I'll just apply to some law schools and ended up getting accepted into a bunch of different places. I took a trip down to William & Mary down in Williamsburg, Virginia, and liked it enough. And I traveled there when I was a kid. when. Younger, driving around the country with my parents on family vacations and kind of loved it. So I just moved my stuff down there and went to law school there. And I never really had this, like, grand vision of, like, changing the world or, you know, some people want to go to law school because they're, like, young and idealistic and think they can really make a difference in the world. There's a mutual friend of ours, uh, our good friend Ben, that I think fits in that category um, who wants to change the world. And I hope he does because we need some changing. But for me, it was just kind of like this. Just seemed like the logical next step for me, and that's kind of how it came to be.
0: Actor, lawyer, world changer, Ben Natan. Yeah,
1: trying that's to, tough,
0: trying to, tough. you know, I mean,
1: Carson Wentz look alike.
0: <laughs> Carson Wentz, Andy Dalton look like Ben Natan, yeah. uh, yeah. meaning he has red hair. Um, but no, I, I think. No,
1: the Carson Wentz, that's that's pretty uncanny.
0: Yeah, it is. It actually, really, really is. Uh, but. Were you on when there were the Andy Dalton prom pictures? No. So that was before your time. I gotta show you the Andy Dalton prom pictures because they're, they're pretty great. (laughs) They're, they're pretty freaking great. No, but it it sounds like the story I know that for me, when I was going to college, I originally was like, I'm gonna go to law school. Uh, I ended up not doing that because to be honest, I just did not like the prereqs at all Uh, I and we didn't even like have too many prereqs but they were sort of the classes that all my friends were taking they wanted to go to law school and I was more interested in other things I was also working uh, at a radio station full-time pretty much my entire junior year of of college so I was and even before that I mean I was waking up early most days to do morning shifts or staying up late to do evening shifts so I did not have the time to study for LSATs or anything like that. But I definitely have a lot of respect for the people who do go to law school. And I guess what are a couple of things that you learned in law school that you apply to your life?
1: Yeah, I mean I think the biggest thing that I take away I, – that I, I took away from law school that I actually still apply now and it's the power of persuasive argument – in the written form. I mean, I was always a kid that could, you know, do mock trials, you'd like get up and whip together like a closing argument on the fly. It was just one of those things I could weirdly do. But when it came to like writing a motion for summary judgment or something like that, like couldn't do it until law school kind of like you know, it molds you into a legal writer. And To then try to apply that to what I'm doing now inside the pylon, like my writing style and stuff had to get broken down and sort of rebuilt, but it's still based along the framework of treating every reader that reads a piece like they're a judge and I'm trying to convince them of a point, but doing that in somewhat a more informal, you know, through the prism of football rather than, okay, these are the five different laws and this is the standard review and, you know, this is why my client should – not be liable for the perceived harm by the plaintiff or whatever and so you know constructing an argument in the written form is something that i I still do each day like i take each piece at inside the pylon and i'm like okay i'm going to convince the person that reads this that you know this quarterback from north Dakota state university is worthy of the you know the title of qb1 in the draft and i'm gonna do everything i can to convince them of that because you know that's what i'm trying to do so i i try to keep You know, treat each reader like they're a judge, and like I'm trying to convince them, you know, to find my client like not liable or something. And that's like the biggest takeaway. I mean, the other thing that really sort of smacked me in the face, um, just how hard it was. Law school was not easy. And I'm not saying this because I did incredibly well. I really didn't. I mean, I obviously graduated and I did okay, but you know, I was always able to kind of like get by, like you know, read the book the night before and like be able to throw a paper together. And that like first semester of law school was like a smack of reality. And I think, you know, that more than anything might've been the biggest lesson, which is, you know what, you know, life can be hard. Like stuff can be hard. Like you can't just, you know, half-ass it and get through and get by. And, you know, that as well is something that I definitely needed to learn because, you know, had I not gone to law school, like so many aspects of my life would be so different. I mean, the biggest thing that happened to me, in law school was I met the woman that I'm now married to and we have two kids and that's like you can strip everything else away about my law school experience like that's the most important thing that ever happened to me so however good or bad or negative thoughts that I may have about law school itself like meeting my wife there has you know changed my life for the better and it still does teach each and every day so that's been a great part but learning the lesson of you really, really need to like try harder man because you having been slacking off up to this point, and it's going kind to of come eventually bite you in the ass, and it did that first semester. Learning that was probably more important than anything.
0: So as a lawyer, do you sympathize more with the prosecutional way of thinking or the defense?
1: Probably defense, and I come to it from a weird sort of path Um, I had a number of different law jobs. Like I, I wasn't a guy that like graduated law school and like went to one firm and stayed there until I decided I couldn't do it anymore. I mean, we graduated law school in 2002 when the world and the legal market were a little bit different than they are right now. And so my wife and I, you know, she's from the Midwest. I'm from the Boston area. We moved to the DC area and neither one of us had a job. We took the Maryland bar exam, passed and we're trying to like scrape together work doing like contract lawyer gigs. Eventually, she got a judicial clerkship, and my first legal job was sort of as an in-house counsel to an insurance company, which sounds great until you hear that it was an insurance company that insured cab drivers in D.C. It was out oh by God. FedEx Field, off of Benin Road, and we operated basically on farmer's hours, which I mean, by that I mean, when we would close when it got dark, because we didn't want people in that area after dark. We wanted everybody to get out of there and get home because it wasn't the best area of town. I mean, that's that was my glamorous start to the legal profession was defending cab drivers when they, you know, Monday mornings were brutal because you'd have all these cab drivers out 24 hours like getting people home from bars and then getting into car accidents. Like, that's how I started. And, so I was defending cab drivers in car accident cases and then went to another firm where I was starting to do more stuff like defending, you know, bigger insurance companies with bigger cases like that. And then, I, Went down a weird path for a couple of years where I went to a different firm in downtown D.C. that did stuff on the plaintiff side, but was also – and this is kind of interesting and it's been very timely right now. We were also the general counsel of the D.C. Police Union. And so for three years, I was the assistant general counsel to the D.C. Police Union where I was defending police officers in a variety of cases when they were facing termination, some of which were for – you know, off the job, stupid stuff like drunk driving, some of which were use of force cases, some of which were use of violent force cases, where I had a case that I've worked on where a guy unloaded 36 rounds into a suspect's fleeing vehicle and hit the guy 27 times and killed him. I mean, and so to work on stuff like that, it's been, th- those were three really interesting years. And for a guy like me who's, know grew up outside of Boston went to Wesleyan University is probably no secret what my political leanings are to have that sort of experience and work with police officers and the police union and basically live in an episode of the wire for three straight years was just an unbelievable experience I left that went to a big firm did that for a few years and that's when I was like look I can't I just can't do it anymore I I got to do something different
0: so I I And and we know what happened after you ended up leaving that firm, but I do want to take a step back because that aspect of you working with the D.C. Police Union is super interesting and, as you said, very timely. So as you see a lot of what's happening in this country now where there are a lot of cases where there seem to be instances of excessive force, uh, even from an objective standpoint, I mean, even at the Republican National Convention, we have seen people call that they're – Was excessive force applied in some of these scenarios? Not all of them, but, I mean, Alton Sterling's name was dropped by Ted Cruz, which is one of the things that I thought I would never, ever, ever hear. But how has your experience given you perspective when looking at issues like this? And what do you think you can add to the conversation that people might not know about?
1: I mean, I think one of the first, like... We can all sort of agree that police officers don't have an easy job. I mean, I think that having worked with these guys up close and personal, having, you know, been in a conference room with them when, you know, they're telling me about working in the seventh district, which is, you know, Northeast Washington, DC, which is not an area like it's the area I was describing earlier where you don't really want to be at night. It's, it's a rough part of town and, you know, not knowing, next time you roll up on a guy that you're pulling over what that guy's doing because it's dark and you can't see like the stress that comes with it like having heard these experiences from these guys like i understand it i understand that to some extent i mean you can't put yourself in their shoes at that moment so, you know when it, you when it's actually you wondering if the next person you roll up on is going to pull out a gun and try to take your life like But you can kind of see the stress that comes with that. But at the same time, you have to remember that all of these officers have – you know, it varies from jurisdiction and from department to department. But a use of force continuum that they're taught, that they're trained on, and having worked on use of force cases when it's acceptable to use deadly force. I mean there are – so many steps that officers are taught to take before the use of deadly force i mean you have to get to it's literally a person with a gun or a person with a knife at your throat before it's really deemed justified i mean you know things such as like minimal contact restraints to full contact restraints to body tackle and to you know use of tasers and other things like that to subdue a suspect like there are all these steps along the process that these guys are taught and so when you see like the most recent one, which you have an autistic man lying in the street, playing with a toy truck, I believe. And one of his caretakers is trying to calm the man down. He's lying on his back with his hands up and he still gets shot. Like at what I, I think of that use of force continuum, which I studied, which I went over with these guys. And I, I'm you're looking at it and you're like, at what point, was any use of force justified, let alone firing around at this person? Right? It just blows my mind. And so, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I can, you can almost kind of understand why guys feel threatened. It's a stressful job and it's a dangerous job, but there are steps in the chain before you get to this point. And it just seems like there's always this like quick escalation. And maybe we never get the full picture all the time, but knowing all the stuff that has to happen or that can happen before that final decision, it just never always It just, – I'm always just baffled, I guess.
0: And I don't know if you saw what the police union leader in Miami said about uh, uh, how the officer was aiming at the autistic person and missed. First of all, I I, I, I can't. and and i don't know i mean i that is the worst excuse it would have been better to say nothing at all than to say i was aiming at the autistic person playing with a truck in the middle of the street
1: yeah but i i I, I don't understand that at all and i mean when these incidents happen there's often a police union spokesperson that will, will say something and you know it's similar to the nflpa and you know, having worked with unions, understand that unions do have a job and these people do have jobs and their job is to like, you know, protect the union members. And so these people are just doing their jobs, but you're right. Like, just don't say anything. Like you just make it worse. And, you know, I described one of those cases where it was a Friday afternoon on the DC beltway and, you know, traffic goers, beach traffic, trying to head out to ocean city, Maryland. And they had a, Suspect on the run in a vehicle. He gets stopped in traffic, and he's slamming the vehicle into a car in front of him, which has a mom and two kids, and this guy gets out and unloads 36 rounds into the vehicle, hits the guy 27 times, and his excuse was, I was trying to hit the engine block to get the car to, st- to shut off.
0: Yeah, that's not a legitimate but, excuse.
1: <laughs> but 36 rounds? But you're firing it into the engine block behind which there's a driver, and then from the angle, this guy was fired, and he was still in the firing line of other, like, you know, civilians, like, bystanders. And the crazy part, and he got fired for it, and he was, you know, he was proposed termination, he was given his trial board, he was fired for excessive use of force. Seven years later, I got him his jaw back. And I got him his jaw back because... Under the CBA, there's a, a calendar that's called like a 55-day rule where after your trial board, you're, you're entitled to get your decision within 55 days. He got his decision on day 56.
0: So because so of that loophole. The
1: process and because of one day, he got his job back, seven years of back pay.
0: That's incredible. Yeah.
1: And, and- – it, it, it also shines a light on what like big cities are dealing with because you know you've got an understaffed like general counsel's department in the District of Columbia that misses a deadline, and now the city has to pay back pay with interest and all that stuff to a guy that, by all intents and purposes, probably shouldn't be walking around with a badge and a gun.
0: And it's I and I do understand like it is difficult to be a police officer because. I, you definitely I do feel like it is a job where because of the nature of the role everyone is very much on edge. At the same time though, like there the cases that we are seeing of police violence to me there is no reason why a cop in Cleveland should be rolling up and immediately shooting a 12-year-old kid. At the very least you got to talk to him when you're in the car. Like you got you, you, you when you get closer, you can see that he's not a threat. You can actually see the gun. You can't just roll in and start shooting him. Like, and, and and the crazy thing is when I see a lot of people try to dehumanize Tamir Rice by calling him Rice and lumping him in with, like, all of the other people. Like, they're like Rice and Brown and Garner. They say their names. Like, these are people who objectively did nothing wrong. There's video evidence they did nothing wrong. There's video evidence that they were already subdued, and yet people continued on this process and, and killed them anyway. Yeah. I mean, the Eric and, Garner thing was really what I thought would make people wake up, because there's video evidence that this guy was subdued, and he was suffering, and he like he was no threat to anybody, and yet it didn't even matter.
1: And we're seeing it now in this area with the Freddie Gray trials. Yep. I mean... Freddie Gray is, you know, broke his back, severed his spine, but they can't get convictions on these guys. And, you know, like with, with the Tamir Rice, I mean, that's a prime example of the sort of use of force continuum where, you know, there's no reason to go to step 17 on the list when you've got a 12 year old kid. Like, yeah, he had a, he had a toy gun in this case, right?
0: Yeah, he had had a BB gun. And he was just, like, playing with the BB gun in the park. Like, wasn't hurting anybody. And it's just one of those things. I talked about this with Caleb and Chuck last week. Caleb, Count Caleb and and Charles McDaniel. uh, Charles McDonald, not McDaniel. Duh. (laughs) Sorry about that, Chuck. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But uh, we talked about this last week about how, like, the police came for Tamir Rice because somebody saw him and got nervous because there is this predisposition of nervousness with a lot of people in – with a lot of white people and with a lot of people in general. Like like people get nervous when they see someone who they're not familiar with or when they see – or or some people are just racist and they get nervous when they see someone who is not of the same color that they are. And I, I mean to me it's just like this – crazy notion and I, I think that i'm hoping that the police become more sensitive to that and just don't do stupid things i think that 99 percent of uh, the community that's being policed everyone understands that the police have hard jobs i even i think the black lives matter activists understand that police have hard jobs but it That doesn't excuse the flagrant overage of violence that we have seen and the fact that in many of these cases, the police who are supposed to be wearing body cameras are not wearing body cameras for whatever reason, whether they've they've magically fallen off or whatnot. And there just needs to be more accountability. This is
1: just another example of how, like, in this you know there are so many great things about the time in which we live between the internet between the fact that I'm talking to you from two different cities and we're doing this over the internet which is amazing but at the same time like we've we've become so tribalized in the sense that every issue has one side or the other and never do the two ever really meet and people fire off their takes on Twitter or whatever and then they retreat to the sidelines where they're surrounded by other like-minded people. And so it becomes black lives matter or all lives matter, or it becomes black lives matter or blue lives matter. And there's never like you just described, or there's not enough of people stopping for a minute and just genuinely trying to like see the other point of view. And maybe it's a function of the times in which is easier to become tribalized. Maybe it's an unfortunate byproduct of just how society has just developed where, Everybody just would rather be right than see the other point. I don't know what it is, but we need more of that kind of stuff, I think, than anything. Like, it's so easy right now. And, heck, we even see it on draft Twitter, where either you think a prospect is great or he's off. There's, like, no gray area. It's either you're a golf guy or a Wentz guy. It's either you're a Derrick Henry guy or an Ezekiel Elliott guy. Like, you can't have – you can't be, like, they're both good. It's like, no, you have to pick a side.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, and it stinks because I'm going to give you your your time now to talk about what your thoughts on the RNC are this week. And full oh, disclosure, full disclosure we're, we're recording this before the presidential nominee speaks, uh, but I wanted to give you your time. So feel free, say what you want to say about your thoughts about the RNC and, and just in general, the state of the party.
1: Right. Well, I mean, I think, and again, we're doing this, it's now 920 on Thursday night. Trump has yet to give his speech, but the speech itself has been leaked. So I've read it. Um, I'll I'll say this. I, I think back to 2008 and you have Barack Obama, who is basically a freshman senator with like very little political experience. And he's getting hammered by like the media, and you know, even to some extent, Hillary Clinton during that primary fight, and certainly by the Republicans as we got into the general election. That this this is a guy with no experience. And one of the common retorts to that was, okay, so he doesn't have a ton of political experience. He has never really run anything. Sure, he hasn't been a governor, but he's run this campaign, and this was an incredibly efficient well-oiled machine down to like the street level in a district to make sure they could get enough delegates. That that was their goal from day one. And that's a goal of any primary presidential campaign is to get enough delegates to hit that threshold. And they ran an incredibly well-oiled machine. You look at this week and this convention and how it's unfolded in Cleveland. And on day one, you have, you know, the big headline speakers, Melania Trump, who's not, a politicians or a politicians wife by any stretch of the imagination. This is all new and basically, for lack of a better word, foreign to her. And gives a, what at first glance is like a nice speech. I mean, it somewhat humanizes the Trump family a little bit and gives you a little bit of insight into their world. And within minutes, I mean, within minutes, Twitter is like, wait a second, we've heard this one before. And You've got like whole sections of paragraphs, like ripped right from Michelle Obama's 2008 speech. Now, the fact that it happened, okay. Like, stuff like that, I guess, can happen. We'll just say that. So, fine, it happened. You, you know, you put a tourniquet on the wound then and there, and you shut it down and you make it an eight or a 12 hour story, but not this campaign. They start to deny. They're bringing up My Little Pony. They're doing stuff that, you know, they're saying it never happened. They're saying, oh, you know, did, did, you know, Michelle Obama invent words? Like these are just words and parts of words. And they make it into a three-day story. It's like they can't run this convention. They let Ted Cruz, who, you know, full disclosure, not a guy that I probably would ever pull a lever for to vote voting booth. But you let him – who has told you he's not going to endorse you, he's shown you his speech and he's not going to endorse you, you still let him go out there and you let him steal the night from Mike Pence? It's like they can't run this convention. And so for a guy that has staked his whole presidential campaign on, I'm a great businessman, I make great deals, I'm going to run this, like I've run my business as well. Look how he's run this this convention just three nights. Imagine a Trump White House with this kind of, you know, the way they've handled this. Like... Whatever you want to say about the guy's belief structure or whatever, which, you know, obviously I have my opinions on, and they're not very good ones of how I view his worldview. But these three these three or four nights, at least to this point, it should be a wake-up call to, look, this guy's not ready for this. He's not ready for the job. Like, and it's not a job where you can really learn on the fly. And that was the argument against Barack Obama from this party in 2008. It's not a job where you can learn on the fly. And, yeah, Trump got through a crowded field. Good for him. You can't learn this job on the fly. And if that was your argument in 2008, where are we now? What's changed?
0: I think that everything you said is correct. The one other thing I would add from a, a larger party structure is that this is now the – in my opinion, and I don't want to jinx it. I'm uh, so I'm not going to you know, – I'm not going to say it. I don't, I'm not going to jinx it. But this is now three elections. Uh, the, the last two, you know, you heard the bubblings of this – really, really right-wing, social, uh, economic, nativist aspect begin to bubble up, and they were able to stave it off by getting quote-unquote electable candidates like John McCain, who who had Sarah Palin as his vice, and then also Mitt Romney, who was quote-unquote electable. And I think it really did bubble up, with Donald Trump, where, you know, a, lo- a lot of conservatives who I know and Republicans who I know are saying that, you know, they wouldn't support Trump. They didn't support Trump. They don't know who to vote for now. This isn't their party. At the end of the day, this is who a majority of your party voted for. And it's because of the values that the Republican Party perpetuated over the past eight years yeah. or longer. I mean, they are reaping what they sow. And I think that the GOP needs to take a long look at their crazy talk radio hosts and their awfully biased television station and the beliefs that they espoused and see how it led to the rise of Trump and how they can keep it from happening again. Because otherwise, this isn't going away.
1: Yeah. And when you spend basically the better part of eight years basically questioning the American nature, the, the basic fact that, the Democratic president is even an American when you make him when you otherize him for basically eight years you shouldn't turn around and be surprised when the guy that led that charge is now your party's front runner and your party's standard bearer for the office of the president and that's what we've got here I mean they spent eight years basically making Barack Obama the other and Trump led that charge and demanded to see the birth certificate and now here he is about to give a speech accepting the nomination for the Republican Party Exactly. I, I mean. And how can you be surprised at this point?
0: Yeah, he was the person who, who led the charge. And I, re, I just remember that. And so whenever I'm in a bad mood, this is a secret about me. Whenever I'm having a not so good day, what I'll do to make myself feel better mm-hmm. is watch Fox News and the Blazes reactions on YouTube after Barack Obama won in 2012.
1: Oh, wow.
0: immediately after. And, and, and I will say, they definitely cheer me up when I watch them, because you just see a lot of really, really sad people, and it's very entertaining. Well,
1: but, I just remember Carl Rove almost demanded that they rescind the call of Ohio. Yeah. Like, no, the numbers are wrong. No, but, that's because, how much money did he sink into that campaign?
0: So what I remember is Glenn Beck sitting with his group of his team. Um of conservatives, and they were talking about what this meant, what this election meant to them. And the one thing they all said is that they couldn't stop being conservative, and they needed to assess what happened and fix it so they could win back the White House in 2016. And all I know is that, by all accounts, looking at what's happened, people like that who, who, by the way, Glenn Beck is not a Trump supporter from what I can recall. He is not at all. But people like that, they, they didn't fix anything. This party just went with the status quo and stayed obstinate and just obstructed everything and didn't court any new voters into their party because I hate to say it, but no one is going to give a crap about like the nuance of your policy when you have Tony Perkins of the Family Research Council and Sheriff Joe Arpaio speaking on the last night of your convention because both of those people are bigots. Like, that's not – you're not going to court voters like that. That's not something that is going to happen.
1: If things go as I think we expect them to and they suffer a pretty substantial electoral college defeat, there's going to have to be some serious soul search and decide, you know, what path do we really want to go down because – You know, and there was a story recently where George W. Bush expressed some fears to a small group of donors recently where he fears that he's the last Republican president because the demographic shift is coming. And this campaign, this primary that's been run by Donald Trump, isn't helping stem that that tide.
0: It'll be interesting to see how the political scene shifts. We're going to move over to the stuff portion super quick because I do want to touch on the site that you built. Because inside the pylon is your baby, which is pretty cool. It's your third child. Um, Is it the oldest of your children or the youngest?
1: No, it's it's the youngest. We turned two. We'll turn two in September, so it's the youngest of the three. Um, And I will say full disclosure: it's not just me. Like you know, I was one of you know co-founders. But yeah, it's been a crazy little ride, man.
0: Yes. so why don't you take us through the story of, of how you found you know, it? Yeah,
1: I mean, basically, it started out of arguments that we were having on the Sons of .dot net message board, which, for those that don't know, it's a uh, Red Sox message board. It's been out for years, like predates Aaron Boone, Curt Schilling, and all that stuff. And it's basically a year-round site. You know, we got you know thousands and thousands of members worldwide. And when we're not fighting about the Red Sox, we would fight about other Boston sports, including the Patriots. And so some of the guys that you know now from inside the parliament, like Dave Archibald, like Chuck Sauter, like Brian Philpack, myself, we would ha- we would basically be writing the p- columns that you see now in Post form on this message board for years. I mean, you know, dating back to breaking down um, a couple of the Super Bowl runs, things like that, and so it was the summer before the 2014 2015 season we've been obviously at this stuff for a while and we had this idea a group of us that why don't we try to see if we can split it off into its own site and see if people would actually read it and so we launched the monday after the week one games that 2014 2015 season and we were basically a patriots blog more or less um because we grew out of our Red Sox boards. So we focused our coverage on the Pats. We covered them extensively. I did run previews and pass previews and you know, passing game recaps and running game recaps for the Patriots each week. Um, and we caught lightning in a bottle because they made this run and won a Super Bowl. And so we had an entire year to cover the Pats, build it up to that, and nobody still really knew who we were. And we got through that next draft cycle, and you know, this past season kicks off, and you know, honestly, we had, like, on Twitter, we had, like, 300 people following us as of, like, last September. I mean, we still weren't really that well-known, but we caught a number of breaks along the way. This relationship with Dan Hatman and the Scouting Academy, some other big names in the business, like, coming on our podcast, like Doug Ferrar and Aaron Nagler and Matt Miller. And it's, it's just kind of taken off to the point where we've added some great new writers, and we've got, like, a whole, like, crew of people writing for us now, and... You know, and editing for us now, which has been probably the biggest part to what we do, which is the editing process where we've got a whole team of guys that basically do nothing but edit stuff. So like every piece that goes up, has been seen by a team of editors beforehand. So we make sure that every piece that goes up is as good as it can possibly be.
0: And I will cannot stress enough. I said this when Ty Schalter came on the show, and this is my advice for anyone who decides to do a site you need editors. Editors make things so much better. I have gotten really lucky. I mentioned it before, but I've had my work edited by some amazing editors who just make me sound so much smarter than I actually am. And it it, it really does help. Other than that, what other advice do you have? Because, you know, I've been part of a a couple of failed sites uh, on the side, you know, I was in the draft Mecca crew um, R.I.P. Playmaker mentality, R.I.P. Uh, so, you know, people are people want to produce content and start sites and, and really do some cool things, but it's a hard process, and I totally appreciate that. I actually helped James Christensen start NY Jets draft back in the day yeah. before handing it off, uh, even though I'm not even a Jets fan. I just sort of helped him start it. But what would you say are – some key lessons you've learned in starting a site.
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously the editing thing is huge. Like, I, I can't stress that enough either. I mean, if I, if the stuff that I wrote in raw form went up on the site, nobody would be coming back. Like it takes an editing team to like make things that are good. Great. And that's what you want because at the end of the day, Like the content stands out and content, particularly good content is king. So if you, let's say, you know, you're out there and you're like, oh man, I really love what some college football team is doing. I want to sort of set like breaking down some college football stuff or whatever it is you want to do, like have people that you trust and people, this is the other key point, people that will not be afraid to criticize your work and critique your work heavily, like have them involved. Like get people that will edit your work involved as soon as you can from like day one, because you know, there's a ton of stuff out there, but the good stuff always rises to the top and that's helped along by the editing process. The other thing is, and I sort of take this, it's weird because the people that are working on inside the pylon, like for me, it's become a day job since I left the practice of law and it's kind of a day job for a couple of other people, but People have come to this from other careers. I mean, we're not all coming to this from the media world. We've got people working in finance. We've got professors. We've got people working on Capitol Hill. So we've all kind of brought our own different sort of professional experiences to it. And one thing that I brought from the practice of law is the networking aspect. Use Twitter for good. Like, we love sharing other people's work. We love highlighting good work out there for a number of reasons. One – you know, there's so many. It's a great time to be a football fan because you can wake up in the morning and think, Ah, uh, what are the Patriots doing against the cap? Well, there's pass cap out there. Miguel's doing great work. You can, uh, who might the Patriots draft? Well, there's tons of draft sites out there. It's breaking down guys from the top two prospects of the draft down to dudes at the Division three level. Like, you can find that stuff. You can find tons of fantasy stuff out there. Like, you can literally spend – a day in your office, avoiding work. I know because I used to do this before I left the practice of law, just reading about football. So it's great stuff out there. And it's great to like share that stuff because it is like a community and you can share other people's good work because you know what? They'll share yours and like build relationships with other people. Like don't like there are writers out there that kind of think that they're the only people that do this stuff and that they're better at it than anybody else and they're very reluctant to share other people's work, all the power to them, that's great if that's the way they want to do it. We've always believed that, look, we'd rather you know, let people read everything because if you like our stuff and you see us recommend something and readers start to trust our recommendations, that builds a relationship not only between us and a different site, but it between, builds a relationship between us and a reader. They'll trust our opinion on stuff. So then t- two weeks later when we write a column, they'll read it because they trust our judgment. They trust what we value. And so don't be afraid to like reach out to other sites. Don't be afraid to network and don't be afraid to ask for help. I made this point with Matt Harmon. who has got a great podcast series as well.
0: He's been on here too.
1: Yeah. And, you know, sort of the underlying theme of like Harmon's backyard banter podcast and how people get involved in this industry. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Like so many of our newer writers are guys that, sent me a piece and they were like, I'm looking for your feedback on this. And it, it was something that I thought, look, this is good. And I want them right on inside the bylaw. Now, somebody's listening to this that might send me something I might work. We've got a full staff of writers at this point, so we're not really looking for new writers. But if I read something, I think it's good. I'll, I'd be more than happy to recommend people to do other sites or, you know, help them start their own thing. Like, so don't be afraid to ask for help. This is a very, for the most part, warm and welcoming community. I mean, I'm inside the pylon. not even two years old. I mean, there are people that are listening to this show right now that probably didn't know who inside the Pollen was or who I was like a year ago. And here I am.
0: Or, or and, don't know until tonight.
1: Yeah. And it's because this is a community like you having me on this show. Mm-hmm. I mean, people like to share their stories and people like to help each other. People, you know, maybe this is kind of a way to like bring the whole, this whole like tongue together even to a nice little bow on it. Like at our core, we like to help other people, whether it's in this industry or around the world. Like we like to help other people. So don't be afraid to ask for help. So get an editor, make some relationships and don't be afraid to ask for help. Those would be my big three pieces of advice.
0: Editors are the left tackles of websites.
1: Seriously. They, they really are,
0: are the left like, tackles of websites.
1: Yeah. And it saddens me to see like a big media, like, Chad Finn at the Boston Globe has to do his own editing. And it's like, Chad Finn's a great writer. Like he does great work. Like don't make him edit his own stuff. Like it pains me to see big media sites, like scaling back on editors because they're like the lifeblood or the left tackle. It's a great analogy of content creation. And it just pains me to see that. So
0: Great. Well, that's going to do it. Mark Schofield, Thank you so much for being on the show this week.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Ethan. I'm a big fan of the pod. Um, I I listened to it. I really loved last week's with um, your boys and, you know, Charles. And uh, so, yeah, thanks again, man.
0: Yeah, no, it was a pleasure. We covered so much ground like we do every week. And uh, thank you for listening. Uh, Feel free to share this podcast with your friends. We will be back next week as we always are talking about sports society and stuff. Until then, talk to you later.